0: markets, speculation, and risk.
1: This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Feifield.
2: What's up and welcome, my friends. You are listening to Chat with Traders episode 222. Today, my guest is Luke Cummings, and I'm sure a few of my day ones will remember Luke from way back when he was a guest on episode 31. But either way, Luke is the CIO of Harvest Lane Asset Management, a Sydney-based hedge fund with a core strategy of trading in mergers and acquisitions, or M&A for short. Now, unlike our first chat in 2015, where we spoke about all sorts, this time I had one very specific objective when asking Luke back. How to properly assess and successfully trade around takeovers. You know, I think it's quite easy to be intimidated by the idea of trading takeovers as there can be many moving parts. And I know for me, it's certainly a bit of a knowledge gap. But as there are plenty of professional traders out there who have built their entire career solely on takeovers and merger arbitrage, I feel it's worthwhile to at least gain a base understanding of how these deals come together and how to spot potentially profitable opportunities when they exist. Believe me, Luke does a phenomenal job of explaining the entire process from the point of when a takeover bid is first announced to the market, right through to completion. I learned heaps and I'm confident you will also. Folks, I'm pleased to present Luke Cummings. You know, I am actively trading, mostly day trading, but. Obviously, I'm seeing all the announcements that hit the market throughout the day and sort of pre-market, et cetera. And as you're well aware, these announcements come out about uh, takeovers, et cetera, and these deals happening. I very rarely trade around these events, mostly because I'm pretty clueless about, you know, the ins and outs of how it all works and where there's kind of an opportunity to be had and if there is an opportunity to be had. Sure. So pretty much when I see these kind of announcements, I just ignore them for the most part, which means I'm probably ignoring some uh, some, some good opportunities from time to time. So I'd just like to speak with you kind of about how you assess these uh, potential opportunities around takeovers, how you initiate a position, I guess then we'll go into you know how you manage the trade and, and news flow which comes out and then obviously the back end like exiting the trade so you know let me put forward a scenario to you so you get to the screens tomorrow morning market hasn't opened yet you're just sifting through the the pre-market announcements you see company ABC has made a bid to take over company XYZ first things first where do you even begin in assessing if there's a potential trade
1: Sure. So uh, I think the first thing we're primarily interested in is, you know, how credible is the bid in terms of, you know, things like, is it binding or non binding? Um, who's the bidder? Is it funded? Um, have they completed other successful transactions, you know, previously? Um, are they an Australian bidder or an international bidder? What's the company that's being bid for? Um, is it politically sensitive? Is there going to be potentially an C? Um, or a FERB issue, Um, where's the stock been trading at most recently, what's the price that the transaction is proposed at, is that premium likely to be enough, Um, who are the major shareholders, Um, you know, if we can get a feel for, um, which you maybe can't do immediately, you know, perhaps what they paid or their average price might be and, and where they're likely to see value um, any broker research that we we have or you know, just in terms of general price targets for the security to get a feel for you know, whether the, the bid price or the proposed bid price um, is appropriate. Um, you know, where's the stock trading in terms of its you know, most recent 12-month uh, trading history and, and perhaps longer in some instances? Um, you know, because all of those are factors, I guess there's really two things that we sort of think about here is there's the potential that the transaction completes in its current form um, or is improved upon, and, and I guess we'll get to that um, later in the conversation. But, you know, first and foremost, what we're really trying to do is is figure out, you know, what's the chances that whatever the proposed transaction is um, can proceed because the, the way, you know, that you lose money trading these events and, and, and takeovers in particular is that, you know, the announcement comes out, let's say, tomorrow morning, as you say, stock resumes trading at, uh, you know, 10 o'clock or just after, and the stock's now up let's say 15 percent because of the and the announcement of the bid approach you know you, you, I think you said stock ABC let's say it was trading at 70 cents you know the bids at 90 cents for argument's sake um, and the stock's trading you know 83 84 um, if you pay 8384 and, and end up getting 90 in time that's great. Um, you know, if you pay eighty three or eighty four and end up getting a dollar or a dollar ten or a dollar twenty or, or more, um, obviously even better. What you don't want to do is, um, you know, buy the stock for eighty three or eighty four and, and find out that you know because the transaction uh, falls over, the stock goes back to, to seventy or sixty five or you know lower, depending on the circumstances as to, to why the transaction didn't proceed. So, you know, over a sort of medium term tri- time frame, that's how we would think about the transaction. Um, I guess from a day trading perspective, which doesn't sort of tend to suit us that well, given, you know, the, the size of the money that we're running now. But, you know, my process would be largely the same, um, instead of thinking about whether I could hold the security for, you know, two, three or four months. So I, I guess I'm just trying to figure out, um, you know, if I were trying to day trade it, um, you know, what an appropriate level is for the stock to trade at, um, Obviously, you can buy it more cheaply than that. The, the market does tend to be semi-efficient, you know, within a fairly short period of time in, in pricing these bids. Um, probably less efficient, you know, sort of over the um, the medium term, and, and we can discuss why that's the case uh, a little later.
2: Okay, just to be clear, I'm, you know, not trying to get you to frame this as a potential day trade. I mean, I guess a few questions just to bounce off what you've said there, uh, and this is going to sort of show how clueless I am about these but what's the difference between a binding and a non-binding takeover?
1: Yeah so uh, really the, the main difference is the extent to which um, you know the transaction can be enforced um, you know irrespective or largely irrespective of circumstances. So um, you know, a, a typical example of a non-binding transaction might be that um, a private equity firm says they're going to make an indicative uh, non-binding approach, um, you know, at X price subject to completing due diligence, um, subject to securing funding, subject to securing, um, you know, their investment committee approval and you know, whatever else they sort of, you know, want to attach to the proposal in terms of conditions. So, the the issue with that is, um, you know, there's a lot of outs there, right? So, let's say that, um, you know, they do their due diligence and they're not happy. Well, you know, they don't proceed. Um, Let's say they do their due diligence and they are happy, but the market's fallen 15 or 20% during that period. Um, You know, they're probably not going to to want to proceed, um, you know, at the original price, um perhaps they can get funding, but it's convenient to say that they can't because they don't want to proceed with the, the transaction. So, you know, in in that situation, the private equity firm or the bidder, um, you know, really is just getting the chance to have a, a free look at at the books and, you know, kind of understand what the company might be worth. Um, some people are cynical about private equity approaches uh, in terms of, you know, private equity wins both ways in that scenario. Potentially, they get to see what they might be buying and, and figure out what to pay. But you know, if, if they're thinking about buying another business in that sector, or they've already got one, then it's a, a free look at you know someone else's financials and um, and strategy. So, um, you know, I mentioned before that the, the main issue you know with your strategy in terms of how you lose money is is if you're paying a premium to enter these positions because you think something's going to happen, um, and then that you know subsequently fails to to eventuate. So, um, contrast that something that's binding is is you know once. Um, uh, a firm you know, implementation deed in, in the case of a, a scheme arrangement or a um, uh, binding takeover bid, um, you know, in terms of a, a takeover, um, at that point, there's a lot less conditionality typically around, um, you know, whether the transaction proceeds. So once it's a binding and, um, you know, whether it's a great offer or, or not, um, once it's binding you have a lot less outs if you're the bidder so if the market falls and you haven't specifically said that, that that's an out clause for the transaction then you know um, you need to proceed with the transaction on that basis if your funding falls over and you haven't made it conditional on funding then too bad you need to find a way to um, you know to proceed with that transaction so uh, I guess what I'm saying is it's you know from a risk-reward perspective, you're sort of eliminating, certainly not all of the downside, but a lot of the downside um, because you know you have a legally enforceable um, contract in place. Probably not dissimilar to, you know, if you own a house and and someone makes an offer to buy it, you know, a verbal offer, I would say, is very different to a, um, you know, written contractually uh, binding offer. Um, That's, you know, in in layman's terms, how you probably think about it, I guess.
2: If it is a non-binding offer, Are you going to disregard a a potential trade around this or are you going to manage it somewhat differently?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, Not necessarily. I I think certainly we're much more cautious on non-binding transactions, um, you know, than we would be on binding. But some of it comes back to what we are sort of discussing before, right? So, you know, who is the bidder? Now, if the bidder is a private equity firm, um, you know, they're the type of bidder that's most likely to walk away from a non-binding transaction. You know, it's not necessarily just non-binding transactions that, that we're, we're cautious of. Some years ago, um, there was, a, I guess, a trend in the Australian market where you had lots of Chinese bidders, um, you know, bidding for assets in Australia, you know, seemingly binding in a lot of instances that, that they would typically find a way to, uh, to to get out of, and it was very difficult for um, Australian target companies to, to enforce that. So, you know, we're trying to figure out, Someone like you know, West Farmers, for example, when they make non-binding offers, have historically had uh, a history of of going binding. Um, you know, some of the, uh, I guess, like big Australian super funds, um, you know, uh, like a Super uh, being an example, um, uh, not a super fund, but Mira being Macquarie's. Um, infrastructure and real assets um you know i think as much for probably corporate reputation reasons they're more inclined once they've uh, you know put into the public domain that, that they're looking at an asset to proceed um you know with the proposed bid so that's definitely a factor i guess in our thinking um also it depends i guess on you know the stock itself and whether we think it's in play whether we think it's cheap whether um you know there's a potentially large kind of pool of, of counter bidders. I suppose um, you know we, we had a transaction um, it's actually still ongoing in, in a company called Think Childcare, TNK is the ASX code. Um, the initial approach uh, late last year was I think at a dollar initially, which was non-binding. You know, we sort of thought that the stock was worth probably $3 at that stage, uh, just, you know, on some back of the envelope calculations we'd done against comparable companies, um, which seems a little silly to say when the, the bids are $1.35 and the stock had been trading about a dollar prior. At that stage, we thought it was sort of worth, you know, dipping our toe in the water. It was a credible bidder who was an industry player. So typically, if you're getting um, a corporate buyer, so in that instance, a, another childcare player, you know, the, the chances usually that they, um, proceed with non-binding transactions such that they become binding is higher so um, in that situation there was a a non-binding approach we took a smallish position then there was another non-binding approach from a second party Um, and then obviously that case in that instance um, that's the risk somewhat anyway because all of a sudden now you don't have one non-binding approach you have two non-binding approaches so Technically, I guess they could both fall over, um, but it's less likely, you know, if you've got two um, bidders that, that they both disappear. Um, you know, as it turned out, there were um, uh, a number of sort of subsequent bids, all non-binding at, at that stage. Um, uh, and the, well, who appears to be the winning bidder now has since gone binding just recently. Um, stocks at uh, the, the final bids at $3.20 plus an $0.08 cent interim dividend um plus uh a large special dividend with some franking credits to kick out as a result so yeah, that would be an extreme example but that's a stock we probably started buying at around a dollar 20 and effectively are going to be selling for you know roughly 325 330 when all is said and done inside about nine months so you know we, we haven't really talked upside yet but you know, that sort of highlights, I guess, why we like the strategy because you just have this inbuilt optionality, um, you know, over further upside. And, and really, what we're trying to do in the first instance is take care of the downside so that we have the ability to participate in, in some of that upside. So, um, to answer your question, you know, non-binding is definitely a red flag for us. Um, some of them we'd avoid altogether, and uh, in other instances, usually just take smaller position sizes. I guess, you know, as much as I say, we don't really think about trading these things maybe sometimes a 15 or 20% discount to the implied bid price might be too large, even from non-binding transaction, we might think perhaps that should be more like a 10% discount. So if we can pick up the stock at you know, 15 or 20% discount, we might do that. And then if the gap closes to more like a 10% discount to the implied terms, um, you know, we might look at lightening the position or, or taking off the exposure altogether just because we think that it's more appropriately priced at that level.
2: Okay. One other thing you pointed out uh, that you'll look at when assessing the uh, initial takeover bid is who are the major shareholders of the target company? Um, so how do you, I guess, assess – you can look and see who the shareholders are, but how do you actually, like, extract some meaningful information from that?
1: Yeah, sure. So I think, um, look, if, if you have a founder-led company um, who owns, you know, 20 30 40% of the stock in some instances – Um, you know, obviously to be able to complete a transaction where um, a bidder can get control, they're probably almost certainly going to need to have that founding shareholder on side. So, you know, if if I was a bidder and I'm looking to buy a company where there's a a founding shareholder who owns 40% of the stock, there's very little point in making any kind of proposal if I haven't already spoken to the major shareholder. Um, and, and have a reasonable idea they're likely to accept the offer. Because no matter what other shareholders think, the influence of that shareholding given its size, but perhaps also the influence that um, that individual would have in convincing, you know, other shareholders to either accept the offer or, or not is going to be significant. Um, on the other hand, if you're looking um, you know, at a register that we consider more wide open. So let's say there's, you know, not really any one shareholder that owns, you know, more than three or four or five percent of the stock, then not any one of those shareholders in their own right has enough of a, of a um, stake in the company to, you know, prevent an offer from, from proceeding, even if they're not that happy with it. So, um, also, you know, fund managers more broadly, depending on their strategy, um, you know, they tend to make, uh, in nearly all instances, sort of less noise about valuation, you know, are, are unlikely. Usually to turn down reasonably priced bids, um, because I guess they have sort of a, a shorter term focus or, or mentality in many instances, despite, you know, what they might say. They're still obviously judged by monthly, quarterly and, and yearly performance. Whereas I think a founding or a founder shareholder, um, you know, sometimes is looking many years out into the future. So, um, you know, that's quite important to sort of understand. You know, I guess from two perspectives. If that founding shareholders on board with whatever the proposed transaction is, it's highly likely to go ahead in its current form. Um, if they're against it, then you know it's highly likely to, uh, sorry, highly unlikely to go ahead in its current form. Now, that could be good or could be bad because if the buyer wants to own that company badly enough, then um, you know they will know that um, they're going to have to pay more and they're going to have to deal with the founder. And, and in that situation. You know, if you're a shareholder, um, that's going to be to your benefit. Um, if they are not happy to pay the price that the founder is demanding, though, um, you know, obviously in that situation the takeover is likely to fail, um, and, and you're going to see a falling share price as a result. So, you know, I guess like trading more broadly, there's you get a whole lot, lot of signposts. I guess um, in terms of how you might deal with certain things, and, and we certainly have fairly extensive checklists in terms of how we think about deals and, and position sizing in each of those deals, but. Um, you know, unusual things, I guess, can happen, good and bad. So, I can't really sit here and tell you that, you know, there's one sort of hard and fast rule that that will always work or always not work. I think it's just more of a case of trying to, you know, get an edge by tipping the odds in your favor.
2: And the example where you do have a founder who is a major shareholder of the company, uh, owns a large percentage of the, the shares on issue. How do you have any insight to whether they are on board or opposed to the takeover bid?
1: Yeah, so often if they're already on board, the company making the approach will announce that they've spoken to the founder and that they've agreed in principle to support the transaction. So, you know, obviously if that happens, um, that's a very good indication from our perspective that that price is acceptable to the founder you know subject to other sort of conditions and, and as we discussed whether you know, the deal binding or not um, we can have more confidence that if, if that deal can be um, uh, made binding that it's it, likely to proceed um, the other benefit of that of course is that you know any other bidders who are potentially um, watching from the sidelines also know that that price is acceptable to the founders so they know that if they're willing to pay more than that then um uh you know that the, the companies in play and if i use an example there um so mainstream group mai um, is the asx code uh they recently um earlier this year announced the transaction um, at a dollar 20 per share that the major shareholders um, uh, many of whom were management um, had agreed to support in the absence of a superior offer um but they also had uh what we would call a go shop clause in their um, transaction document. So usually when a bidder um, approaches a management team or a founder, um, they will say, you know, we'd like to buy the company and, you know, you have a restriction hereafter on your ability to go and, and try and solicit another buyer. So if another buyer comes along, that's fine and you can deal with them um and, and meet your fiduciary uh you know duties as, as your role as director and directors and management um but you you can't go out and try and solicit further offers the difference in the case of mainstream was that they were allowed to uh, go out and solicit additional offers within um i think it was a two-week period following the the earlier announcement of the deal um through a series of counter bids the the final price was actually going to be uh Two dollars eighty. Um, so they started at $1.20. Management were happy to support it at $1.20, but they wanted the ability to go and um, and find uh, you know a better offer potentially. And as it turned out, they found a series of, of better offers um, and settled eventually at, at two dollars eighty. So um, that for us at the time was you know almost the perfect transaction in that it was an agreed deal at the time. Management were willing to support it, but we knew they'd also be trying their best to um, to get uh, a higher offer. So. Um you know, that was a transaction that was really very much overlooked by the broader market um, that for us was an absolute no-brainer to be buying near a dollar 20 at the time, knowing that um, it was very highly likely to go ahead at that price, but that we may end up uh, with better terms, which is um, of course subsequently what happened.
2: Is that somewhat of a a rare scenario? Because if management's coming out insane and management being also major shareholders, Saying that they're willing to, uh, you know, support a takeover bid at a dollar twenty. It seems like why would someone want to pay, you know, substantially more than that? Like what did you say? Two dollars eighty. I think that's a it's a massive jump.
1: Yeah. Look, it's it's definitely not common. Um, but MA, I, I guess, like lots of other things, tends to go in waves. So I would say that you know, in kind of. 20 years, approximately, um, slightly less of trading MA as a strategy. Um, you know, on average, you probably get two or three of those a year. Now, our returns, um, you know, from a fund perspective, have been quite good over the last 12 months um, because you know we've had sort of three or four or five of those. I mean, um, I think childcare and mainstream, uh, you know, all sort of happen within the space of a, of a month of one another and. You know, we had effectively a year's worth of returns, what would normally be a year's worth of returns in, in the space of a month. So, um, you sort of look at that and you go, okay, well, why would management agree to that? Um, if they're looking for a liquidity event, perhaps they've got, you know, lots of their own wealth concentrated just in that one position. Perhaps they're getting towards the end of, you know, their working life and they're starting to think about retirement or, or doing other things. Um, you know, they may be perfectly happy with that price, um, knowing that if there's someone else out there who'll pay more, um you know, that the process should uncover that, uh, that party. And, and in particular, by, you know, negotiating the go shop cause, which I would say was, was quite astute on their part. Um, you know, sometimes people need to know something is for sale, um, you know, in order to be able to buy it. And, and, you know, I sort of mentioned the analogy of, a uh, owning a house uh, earlier and, you know, um, uh, contractually, um, agreed offer in writing versus, you know, a, a verbal offer. Um, if you think about going to an auction, right, you, you set a reserve price and, you know, I guess the property market in Australia at the moment is a perfect example of that. Um, you might have a reserve price on your house of you know four million dollars, and it ends up selling on a day for six point one. Now, you know, presumably you are happy to, to sell your house at four, um, and and everything else you get over that is a, is a bonus. And in the same way, I think you go to auction and don't really know for sure what any party might be willing to pay on any given day. Um, you know, that's sort of what we're trying to, to do here as well, right? So we're trying to make sure that anything that we're in. Um, you know, that there's a really good chance that it's going to sell. So I guess effectively that um continuing the analogy that, that the reserve price is met. And then everything else after that's just pure upside. Um and you know, that's actually the hardest part to forecast. It's actually, you know, reasonably easy with experience to figure out which deals are most likely to fall over and not proceed. Um, it's actually very hard to know you know which deals are, are really going to turn into to great trades because you just don't always have the information of knowing who else is out there that may be willing to pay more than, than what's currently being contemplated.
2: Right, right. That's a that's a really great example. And something you said there actually.
3: Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the US markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more.
2: You said, you know, maybe management is waiting for some sort of liquidity event. They have a lot of their uh, own personal wealth tied up in this company. It's not easy to get out of. Um, Something like this is a sort of perfect exit for them. I guess, like... How important is it for you to kind of understand the story behind behind the takeover bid? I mean, that's just, I guess, one potential example. But often, you know, with these takeovers, there's kind of a, a bigger story at play, right? Yeah. Is that something that you uh, try to understand? It's an, an important um, in, when assessing the deal?
1: Yeah, look, I I think so, albeit that that you can't always, right? I mean, I sort of think of this as like playing a big game of poker in terms of, you know, when you're sitting at a poker table and uh, depending on how experienced you are, you obviously start to, you know, tell yourself stories or or hypothesize about, you know, what other players at the table might have based on, you know, their actions up to that point, right? Now, obviously, it's only a signpost and, you know, a, a player may, be giving off signals that are, that are accurate, if they have a tell that you've picked up on or, um, you know, you've observed, a I guess, um, a pattern of certain behaviour over over time. But, you know, they also might be trying to represent a certain hand or uh, represent a, a certain, um, you know, position or strategy that they want you to believe is happening but isn't actually happening, right? And, and I think there's a bit of that in m as well, depending on, um, you know, who the players are, uh, you can sort of start to hypothesize and, and put together a bit of a story about what you think might be happening. You know, it doesn't always work that way, right? I mean, a lot of the media that you see, um, you know, around takeovers and, you know, the bidder's doing this or the target's doing this or there's this potential counter bidder waiting in the wings. I mean, a, a lot of that is, you know, planted by either the company or the company's advisors or the bidder's advisors or a shareholder who, you know, all have some kind of vested interest in, um, in trying to represent a certain position. So, um, I think sometimes it, it's quite straightforward and easy to kind of try and figure out what the narrative is that might be driving the takeover. Um, other times, I, I think it's more difficult. Um, you know, we find we have a lot of success probably in smaller companies. So anything from kind of, you know, let's call it thirty million dollar market cap up to you know five hundred million, maybe eight hundred million dollars. Um, where you know the parties involved, the the advisors they use might not be as sophisticated. The management team involved, or teams, you know, may have been involved in very few M and A transactions either as buyers or sellers um, over the course of their careers. Um, you usually have better accessibility, you know, as a shareholder to to be able to talk to. You know, both management teams and and both sets of advisors, um, you know, in, in that situation, um, you know, when you start to deal – and it's inefficient. I mean, most people, you know, there wouldn't be many professional funds who, um, you know, are, are doing the work that we're doing in that area. And I would say there's certainly not a lot of, you know, um Retail traders, uh, you know, who are, who are making the effort to kind of do that. So um, once you sort of start to get into bigger transactions where you know market caps are a billion dollars or more, um, that obviously opens the the pool, um, you know, potential participants, uh, you know, from a fund fund manager and hedge fund perspective, because those stocks tend to be a lot more liquid. Um, they tend to be better researched. Uh, all of a sudden, you know, some of the offshore funds from Asia and the US are, are definitely starting to look at transactions of that size, but. Um, you know, the, the smaller transactions, which I guess are probably in the sweet spot for a lot of people who, who may be listening, um, you know, to this podcast is that, um, it, you know, you don't have to be an expert with 20 years of experience to, to start participating in that area. I, I certainly wouldn't say it's something you can take lightly, but, um, you know, if I think about how we started doing it ourselves, you you really just sort of start to pick the safest stuff or what appears to be the safest. Um, You know, you, you absolutely follow along transactions that, you know, you may not even have decided to participate in just to get a feel for how they work out. You know, there'll always be something every year. You know, you find something or see something you haven't seen before, or perhaps you weren't aware of um, the way that bidders approach certain things changes in certain market conditions, and and likewise, the way targets approach it. So, um, I'd say it's a very daunting, you know, strategy to to trade an area to, to start looking at, you know, initially. Um, But I guess like most things, you know, once you sort of observe it enough, uh, you you start to pick up patterns. You start to remember, you know, certain things that happened last time that might happen again. So, um, you know, and and it's a great diversifier. I mean, you said before that, you, you know, you were day trading. I mean, we obviously spoke once before and, and really that was, you know, at least part uh, where, where my career started out as you know, trading very short term. And I think that in time as, uh, you know, you do more of that and as you start to accumulate more assets, you sort of, you know, you almost need to look for those longer term or, or swing type trades. Um, I w- always had a bit of an aversion to, you know, just being long beta. I, I like the idea of generating, you know, alpha rather than just relying on the market to do the heavy lifting for you. That's, probably more a personality trait of mine than anything else. So, you know, this sort of really fits the bill well for us uh, as, you know, a way to trade on a longer term basis. Um, and, you know, that that's sort of where it all evolved from for us, I guess.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, like I said right at the start, I mean, my, my motivations for reaching out to you and, and asking you more about this particular subject uh, is, is kind of selfish because, um, you know, like I said, I, I see these announcements coming out and at the moment I'll just go – yeah, too hard basket and and move on.
1: <laughs> but- yeah, which is is fair enough. I, I look, I think there's, and we can maybe talk about there's some signposts where if I were in your position you know th- that i'd be looking for in the first instance and i think you can avoid not to do a uh, sorry you can um uh, be content not to do a lot of them to avoid them because you're not doing any of them at all at the moment so you know if you wanted to start doing them you just dip your toe in the water with the kind of safest simplest ones so that they're easy to get your head around and you know just build from there right i mean it's um it's like all of us placing our first trade, whether it's M and A or day trading or anything else. You know, ideally, you don't go all in, uh, you know, your first attempt. So um, that, that's how I you know, encourage you or anyone else to start thinking about it.
2: Absolutely, yeah. Can we talk more about the premium? So the the uh, the bid price of the takeover. I guess if we just simplify your strategy to the the. Uh, as simple as possible, you're essentially buying after an initial takeover bid has been announced, and yep. uh, you know hoping that or anticipating that a revised higher bid comes out, or another party gets involved, and ultimately the price moves higher than where you buy it. <laughs> yeah. From a fundamental point, I mean, how do you judge whether the takeover price that's been bid? Uh, you know, is, is a good deal or not?
1: Yeah, look, it's it, it's somewhat less important than you might think to be able to figure that out in advance. And it, it kind of goes back to what I was saying about, you know, the auction for your house, right? The, the thing is that once, you know, this... The way a takeover trades, or the way a stock trades once it's under takeover, is quite different to you know what it trades day to day, right? So, pick any of the two thousand stocks or, or whatever are currently listed on the ASX at the moment, right? Depending on their size, some of them will have broker coverage. There'll be price targets associated with them. Everyone will have a different view on you know what it's worth, um, you know, at, at any given point in time. I think you know, and there's a lot of participants buying and selling in the market every day that that sort of dictates the price. Um, you know, once this, uh, once the the takeover transaction is announced, and especially if it looks likely to complete, then, you know, to some extent, what something is fundamentally worth doesn't matter as much because it's just going to be a matter of, you know, what is something worth to that particular bidder on that particular day? So if we, if we go back and talk about mainstream, um, you know, the, the reason the price got so high there wasn't, I don't think because mainstream was worth anywhere near Um, you know, $2.80 per share and certainly not on a standalone basis, but you had two offshore players, um, in the same industry who are looking to establish more of a toehold in the Australian market and you know mainstream is a, a reasonably um, big player in the, the funds administration business um, you know they have Magellan as, as a client major client um, they won business from Pendle recently a lot of big managers are, are using mainstream um, now so you, you know that was sort of bought for st- strategic appeal I guess as much as anything else And and you know very few people would have been able to justify paying that price but um, if it fits in with your, you know, sort of corporate expansion strategy for an offshore player, then then that makes sense. I think the best transaction still that we've seen, um, uh, at least I can recall seeing over the last, you know, twenty years or so, I I guess it was around two thousand nine or two thousand ten when coal seam gas stocks were were quite popular. Pure Energy, I think the first bid from memory was at dollar, and it ended up being eight when it was all said and done. Now yeah. there's no way when that bid gets announced at a dollar that. You ever in your wildest dreams think that's going to eight dollars? Um, you know we've we've seen ones that you know start at like three dollars fifty and go to eleven. Um, you know four fifty that go to nine. Obviously, mainstream. I think childcare were were good. You know, I'm I'm not sure that any of those settled near where their fundamental value was. I, I think where fundamental value is more important is um, you know, Let's say you have a, a property trust like an A REIT, and um, you know they're they regularly update updating NTA um, and you know, they say that the value of their property assets is, you know, whatever, $2 a share, right? There's gonna get there's gonna come a point for any bidder where, you know, I don't know if it's a 2 dollars $240, $2.50, maybe not even that high, but where the, you know, strategic value of that uh, portfolio of assets is exhausted and, you know, you, you just can't pay that price, right? Um, if you contrast that, I mean, you know, a property trust like that, you can get a pretty good feel for the value of assets. Um, you know let's contrast that with like an afterpay for example i mean you know the value you can come up with for afterpay is extremely wide based on a whole bunch of different assumptions over a period of time so you know in, in some instances that's the type of stock where you know it's much harder to model fundamental value because there's sort of such broad disagreement i guess um you know amongst market participants regarding you know what it might be worth so um You know, where fundamental value is probably a bit more important to us. I I talked before about trying to avoid transactions where, you know, you buy something um, at a premium after a a transaction has been announced, and then that transaction doesn't go ahead and and the stock falls, um, you know, back to the level it was trading at prior or perhaps even lower. You know, the, the way we try and manage that process is we know that's going to happen from time to time. Despite our best efforts, you know, there'll be things that happen that um that go wrong and will stop transactions from proceeding. So we try and think about, you know, if the transaction falls over, what's the likely lowest level that this stock is going to trade at? Um and, and usually as a starting point, we'd use like the, you know, the three or six month low prior to the bid um, is is probably a good starting point in a lot of instances. Um, that may need an adjustment of sorts. Let's say that's an oil stock and that, that, you know, six month low was when oil was at $80 a barrel and now oil is $40 a barrel. Well, you know, clearly, you know, the, the stock all else being equal would trade lower, uh, you know, given the lower oil price. So, um, you know, but that's sort of where we, we try and think about downside in order to size um, positions appropriately and that's where i think fundamental value becomes sort of important if you can sort of satisfy yourself that you know there's a value floor there somewhere um, and, and assume that the stock doesn't trade much beyond that for any great period of time that's where it becomes important i think um you know i I use property trust as an example there's a lot of listed investment companies at the moment that um you know have found themselves subject to uh either takeover or some kind of wind up event um or have you know announced that they'll move from a listed structure to um you know to an unlisted structure um in that scenario because you have good visibility on what the underlying assets are worth you know we we might take the view that okay it's very unlikely that the market would fall more than 25% 25% in the next three months, um, we might assume that worst case scenario, we'd be exiting the stock 25% lower than where we're buying it, and then build out our um, our position sizes accordingly. So I, I think it's absolutely important to have some idea of, you know, kind of worst case scenario value for a lot of these things. But, um, you know, we tend to be less concerned about trying to value what the upside might look like, because, uh, you know, frankly frequently we're surprised by where some of these things end up sometimes you think wow that bids way too cheap and you know they'll have to get an improvement in terms or there must be another bidder who'll buy that and it doesn't eventuate and other times you think wow that's a crazy price there's no way that um you know someone will bid beyond that and, and they do I, I mentioned that stock before that um i'm pretty sure it started at three dollars fifty it was a mining services company uh called Wissi group um a few years back and I think the stock was trading at about $1.75 when the $3.50 bid was announced. So, that's a 100% premium to where the stock had been trading at the time. Um, and then, you know, uh, went on to, I think, finish at like 11 or $11.50. $11. Now, that was also a founder-led stock. Um, it was a bid at 100% premium. I mean, everything about the way that was structured at the start would tell you that that was a very full price and there was very little chance that someone would pay more than that. And yet, someone paid you know, 350% more than that uh, as it turned out. So um, that can be a bit harder to model. Yeah, that's
2: massive. One of the other parts which comes along with the initial announcement is obviously the the terms of the deal. And I understand this can vary quite a lot, you know. Um, you know, there's, I guess, uh, you know, getting shares in the company, um, which is trying to take over the target. Um, getting a cash payout, getting all sorts of different things. Um, can you speak to that a little bit? Like, is there a, are there terms of the deal which are more preferable for you, um, things which you tend to stay away from?
1: Yeah, look, it, it's a great question. And, yeah, absolutely um, there are. So I think, you know, the absolute most watertight ironclad best scenario for a bid is is an unconditional bid right so as the name would suggest no matter what happens in that scenario the bid is binding and enforceable any time up to the um the offer close date you know often in that case the bidder might sit in the market so let's say um you know we'll use abc again so it's a dollar bid and the, the bidder comes out and says it's an unconditional cash bid at a dollar and they're going to sit in the market um, so on the bid side of the market at a dollar um for the duration of the uh, of the bid period um you know for us that's a perfect transaction where if we can buy the stock at a dollar and a half a dollar one dollar one and a half dollar two um you you know we're very happy to do that and you you might say well you know why would you pay a dollar one or a dollar two for something that's bid for at a dollar but the reason we would is because we know no matter what happens that we're getting a dollar back so you know, if you think about trading in a broader context, imagine if you could just buy stuff where you knew even if you're completely wrong, you wouldn't lose any money. Um, but you know, you had the optionality over being right. Um, that's, you know, sort of the, I guess the perfect transaction from a, you know, downside risk perspective. Um, and then it's just sort of, I guess, various degrees back from there, right? So, um, you know, a, a dollar bid that's, uh, you know, conditional, but only upon the bidder. Um, achieving a 50.1% acceptance, um, you know, from shareholders is obviously a much smaller hurdle to jump than, you know, having to get uh, acceptances from 90% of shareholders. So, you know, if that was the only sole condition, um, you know, we'd we'd view that as being, you know, relatively lower risk. Um, You know, also, um, you know, if if it's a, a bigger company, let's say, you know, it was West Farmers trying to buy someone smaller or BHP trying to buy someone smaller in cash, fantastic i mean cash is cash they're, they're obviously you know uh, very established um corporate organizations and you know you wouldn't have any kind of credit risk concerns about either of those organizations if if they're paying you cash likewise you probably wouldn't have that many concerns about um you know if they were paying for the the transaction in scrip uh, or, or shares either right in terms of big companies liquid share prices don't tend to move around that much but the The problem, I guess, with a script bid, meaning that the company's paying in shares rather than cash, at at least in part, is that, you know, the value of shares obviously isn't fixed, right? So, you know, if, if a company that's trading, you know, let's say at a dollar a share says, okay, you know, one share in XYZ, if they're the bidder for every one share you own in ABC, XYZ is trading at a dollar. So therefore, you know, the implied value of the transaction to to ABC is a dollar. XYZ shares could go up to a dollar 20. And obviously then the value, see-through value for ABC becomes a dollar twenty, but XYZ could also go down to 70 cents um, you know, throughout the the period, uh, which means that then all of a sudden the the transaction's only worth um you know 70 cents to ABC shareholders. So um script bids in and of themselves, you know, aren't a problem. and, And in some ways we prefer them because if you can hedge the value of the transaction, in that case, you'd be, you know, borrowing and shorting XYZ. Um, and, and buying ABC, we're not doing that because we think XYZ is going to go down or because we have any particular view on, on the direction XYZ will trade in. We're just doing that to fix the value of the transaction at that point in time. So, you know, if, if XYZ does go up from a dollar to a dollar 20, we're obviously losing 20 cents on our short. Um, you know, but we're making 20 cents on the long side. So in that situation, all we're doing is, is trying to fix the relative value. Um, you know, for a script bid. So, you know, that's how we think about consideration when it comes to the, the takeovers themselves. They're usually either, you know, um, I guess they're all commonly referred to as takeovers, but really there's, there's two, variations of that. One is what is you know technically at law a takeover bid. Um, and that's where the, the bidder basically contracts directly with shareholders um, regarding the transaction. They're quite easy to enforce from um uh, a shareholders perspective. So if the bidder says they're going to do something and then doesn't do it, um you can use the takeovers panel, which are kind of a, an oversight body for um uh for MA activity uh, in the Australian market. Um, it's very cheap and easy to apply I usually get an answer pretty quickly um, the other version is a scheme of arrangement um, which is actually where the bidder um, enters into a contract with the company who sort of acts on behalf of shareholders I guess but uh, without getting too technical about it the contract exists in the first instance between the company uh, the target company and the bidder and shareholders are only bound to the transaction you know sort of right towards the um, the end of the offer period. Um, the difficulty there is that um, uh, there are usually more outs for the bidder, um, and, and one of them being that they need 75% of all shareholders um, to – You know, to vote in favour of the transaction in order for it to proceed. So, um, with a takeover, you can usually get some visibility over time of what the acceptance rate is like because the company is doing the bidding, has to announce to the market, um, you know, what sort of acceptances they're getting for their offer as the period remains open. The problem with a scheme of arrangement is that um, you know it's sort of just a snapshot in time. So it's not until the day of the vote that you you know know for certain that the transaction is or isn't going ahead. It's sort of harder to. calculate that probability in advance. Now, of course, you get media leaks. Sometimes the company gives an update. Sometimes the, the uh, bidder gives an update, uh, but that's a little trickier. And it's also trickier to um, enforce from a shareholder perspective. If the bidder says that they're going to do something and then doesn't do it, you're actually relying on the company themselves to enforce you know rights on behalf of shareholders rather than shareholders being able to do it uh, directly. So, I know that sounds probably like quite a technical point, but um you know it does i guess just open you up to a little bit more risk than would otherwise be the case if you're contracting directly with the the bidder themselves
2: okay i feel like that was quite a key point um it went over my head a little bit but i think um you know if i would re-listen to that i think that was probably quite a valuable bit of insight there yeah
1: that's i'd say that's a big takeaway and probably something that earlier in my career i didn't appreciate as much as i do now i think um yeah it's just a little bit harder to to know you know along the journey from when the transaction is announced to when it finishes exactly where you stand in terms of the likelihood of it succeeding and it's a little bit easier for you know the the bidder to kind of wriggle out of their commitments if the target company you know um, I guess doesn't have the backbone to stand up for its shareholders and want to enforce a deal And, and it's a scenario there might be, let's say you get a big global private equity firm that manages billions and billions of dollars, who's trying to buy, you know, an ASX listed company with a hundred million dollar market cap, and there's a dispute about, um, you know, whether the transaction should proceed. You may guess from the way I'm explaining this that this is an actual real life scenario that that we've seen. But um, you know, the big private equity firm says, "Well, look, yeah, you you know, company ABC, we probably should go ahead with this deal, but we don't really want to. We've got some pretty expensive, experienced lawyers. Um, You know, we're happy to spend quite a lot of money to not have this transaction go ahead. We can tie you up in court for quite a long time. There's no guarantee you'll win." maybe you should just, you know, let us off the hook and um, uh, we'll shake hands and walk away. That might be convenient for the company management. Um, it's not a distraction. They save some money. It's obviously highly inconvenient for shareholders, um, you know, uh, in, including ourselves in that instance. So, you know, in that situation as a shareholder, you're trying to compel management to to do the right thing and stand up for shareholders and, and you're relying on the fact that they will. Um, if that scenario happened with a takeover, um, you know, we or any shareholder could very quickly and easily make an application to the takeovers panel, um, you know, who would almost certainly enforce uh, the transaction, you know, on behalf of shareholders given that it was contractually agreed already. So um, it, it's, I guess, just, you know, you become one step removed from the process in a scheme, and it would be fair to say that you know for that reason we're just more cautious about schemes generally. There's there's more vote risk, and there's a little bit more um, you know risk of the the bidder being able to get out of the transaction that would otherwise be the case with a, a takeover bid.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. You know we're quite a way into uh, this conversation here. I haven't specifically asked you whether the rubber meets the road how do you actually initiate a position? Like how do you actually put on a position? You've decided that you're going ahead to participate in this. You know, are you fighting for price or are you simply just buying at market when the the stock comes online? How do you go about putting on your initial position?
1: Yeah, sure. It's it's a good question. So I, I think, you know, after we've kind of gone through our checklist of, you know, uh, all of the things I kind of talked about before, binding, non-binding, regulatory risk, funding risk, you know, be it a target shareholders etc um we're sort of scoring that out of a hundred so we think of of a hundred as being a full risk position size I guess and and the key here you know obviously if you can is that you want to have a bunch of different transactions in your portfolio um, that are all being driven by completely different factors right that's that's why m a you know tends to be uncorrelated um you know uh, for the most part to broader markets because once these stocks have a transaction uh, pending the, the stocks and where they'll trade thereafter are, are much more um or that process is much more driven by you know developments in the individual deals rather than um you know anything that's happening in the broader market so um you know our portfolio would look like a bunch of different transactions that you know uh, we think of hundred as a full position size and then you know anything sort of scaled down from there so something that meets a lot of our criteria but not all of it might be a you know what we would think of as a as a half um risk position, which is, you know, scored roughly 50. Uh, we don't tend to go below quarter risk position. So sometimes, and, and that might be a scenario we talked about before, where there's like, you know, non-binding transaction, but with a credible bidder and, and where we think the stock looks cheap, you know, we, we might have on a, a one quarter position size. So um, our process is figuring out, okay, where are we likely to have to buy this stock when it reopens? Where do we think that the stock will trade you know, worst case scenario, if this deal falls over over the next few months, and and we see that as being our you know loss per share, if you like, and then we just divide the loss per share um, you know amount into the uh, dollar amount we're happy to risk on that particular transaction, um, and and the dollar amount you know is, is obviously a percentage of our portfolio as, as we see risk, um, and and that tells us how many shares we need to buy. So um, we'll also have a view. You know, on, on where we think the stock should trade after it reopens. So, you know, I mentioned before an on market bid that was unconditional and the bid is sitting in the market at a dollar. Well, you know, you're never going to buy the stock for below a dollar, right? You're going to have to pay more than, you know, a dollar to, to get set in that stock. So, um, whereas if it's, you know, um, conditional in some ways so or binding but conditional bid, um, you know, you might be picking the stock up for, 96 or 97 cents you know 95 cents in the market so you know you sort of asked me about how we we kind of try to deal with how we we buy them if wherever the stock is opening looks far too cheap to us we'll probably buy it more aggressively than we would otherwise um, if we think it looks a little expensive um, and that's not a fundamental call that's just sort of more of a Experience call around the type of deal structure and, and what we think, you know, the appropriate discount or premium is based on what the deal looks like. So, um, if it looks a bit pricey on that basis, then we'll, we'll probably buy a bit less. But, you know, the, I guess the truth is like probably a lot of fund managers and hedge funds do when you've got sizable orders, you're kind of just trying to split them up over a period of time, knowing that you'll never get the absolute best price, but you'll never get the worst price. And, and you just sort of, you know, so we'll, we'll have a limit in mind that we won't pay above in any circumstances. Um, and then, you know, we're just sort of trying to backfill from from there really. But um, that's sort of the process, right? And, and usually we want to be there, you know, at least in some part, um, you know, within the first sort of hour or two of trade. And, and certainly over the first few days, um, if we think the stock's traded a little bit too high relative to where it should be, Um, you know, often sometimes if you wait a week or two, it'll kind of, you know, some of the enthusiasm will come out of it. Um, so again, not a hard and fast rule, but that's sort of how we think about it.
2: Okay. Can you just speak about that a little bit more? Because I think this could be a bit confusing. I I know I've often sometimes wondered this and I I guess the answer isn't, is is maybe somewhat obvious, but if there's a takeover bid for one dollar and the stock comes online, let's say at 95 cents, or maybe it comes online above at $1.5, like what can you take from that? And what what is the market trying to tell you something there, or has the market just got it wrong and priced it inefficiently? Um, is there something that can be taken away from that when the price is uh, opening and I guess, not just the open print, but how it trades, you know, those first few hours, if it's, you know, above or below that takeover price, is there some information you can take away from that?
1: Yeah, look, I think there is um, absolutely. So, uh, you know, and again, there are always exceptions, but a stock trading at 95 cents um, with a bit of a dollar, you know, I guess tells you that the shareholders who own that stock you know, either think that the transaction's not going ahead, not necessarily think that it's not going ahead, but, you know, they're probably thinking about it in probabilistic terms, right? So, you know, if they only think it's kind of 65 or 70% likely that that goes ahead, depending on where the stock was trading prior, they might be happy to take 95 cents and, and move on. If it's a stock they've been in for a long time, it's not liquid. They might be happy to take a, a slight discount to to bid terms if they've got a better use of funds elsewhere. So it's now exceeded, well and truly exceeded their fundamental, um, you know, price for the stock. They're happy to, to sell it and, and reinvest it elsewhere. If it's a big position in their fund, um, you know, maybe they've now hit a position limit about single stock concentration, and certainly that was happening in mainstream. We observed um, just because of, of how much of the in value. So you know, those parties need to sell, you know, a, as well. Um, so you still do have that dynamic of, you know, obviously prices set by, um, you know, buyers and sellers and, and their various motivations. And that's a reason the stock, you know, I would say they're the main reasons the stock would trade at a discount. Now, if it trades at a premium, you know, uh to the bid price, why does that happen? Um, it could be existing shareholders or, you know, or new shareholders saying, hey, that looks way too cheap. So, you know, we're happy to pay above a dollar because we think it's very unlikely that, um you know that's the the final price. Um, I'd say often that's an existing shareholder driving that. They're sort of sending a signal to the bidder, which is, hey, you, if you want to buy it, you're going to have to pay more because we'll happily pay more ourselves. Um, you know, a, a big factor in markets at the moment, you know is the extent to which the stock has been short sold. So you know a short seller's worst nightmare is that you're short a stock um, and then it gets a takeover bid at like a thirty or forty or fifty percent premium. you know now you're scrambling to cover. Um, your position and, and you know anyone else who's short's probably doing the same and then you throw in the fact that there'd you know, potentially be funds like ours who are buying the stock because you know we want to establish a position you know you, you sort of regularly see that and and often you know we're talking about how do we decide when to buy and, and you know how do we kind of space the, the order out over time if you see a short sharp spike like that. And you can usually observe that pre-open, you know, I'd, I'd be checking and we do anyway, but just checking what the level of short interest is in the stock. Because, um, you know, if you have a lot of shorts, uh, you know, typically you, you'd see a bit of, um, kind of early scrambling to cover buying, I suppose. So, you know, that's in a situation where I guess the bid is unconditional. If it's a, sorry, when the bid is conditional, if the bid is unconditional and the, and the buyer is sitting in the market at a dollar, then, you know, if you see the stock trading above a dollar, it's only because people have, you know, kind of being cute, uh, as I described before, where you sit there and you're happy to buy the stock at a dollar and a half and a dollar and one or a dollar one and a half because you know absolutely that your risk is contained at a dollar. So, in that situation, you know, I think it's less of a signaling mechanism and, and just more a product of circumstances. You know, you, you take lots of trades if you knew you could never lose money on them, right?
2: Yeah. What does it mean... You know in the because sometimes these deals are quite spread out in, in time, like you know, a deal might take I don't know, you have a better idea of this than I do, but let's just say six months to take out. So, from the time of it initially being announced to the point of you know, the change of control takes place, yeah. What happens if, uh, say, just sticking with this example, the bid's a dollar and over time so say three months have have passed there hasn't really been too much news flow around the takeover and prices slowly started to drift either up or down i mean what does that mean
1: yeah so let's use the price drifting up example um first so a bit less relevant now given how, how low interest rates are but you know, one of the reasons for this sort of discount to the bid price um, you know, that exists is it's a time value of money thing, right? So, you know, if, if I'm expecting to get a dollar in six months time, then, you know, what's the price I would take today to have the money, you know, in my pocket that, rather than tied up for another, you know, six months, right? So part of the discount is definitely driven by that. And and if you Thought that that was the only cause of the discount, then what you should see is, you know, let's say the bid at a dollar is announced today, stock trades at 95 cents. In a month or so, it'll probably be 96. A month or so after that, it'll be 97, and, you know, so on and so forth until it trades virtually at a dollar, um, you know, uh, at or near the close of the, the offer period. So that's a much more sort of, you know, routine transaction, I would say, um, you know, in, in terms of a takeover that's going smoothly. If the price drifts, you know, it's probably a, it's certainly something that's worth investigating further because, you know, what I've just told you is that that price gap should close rather than become larger over time. So if it's becoming larger over time, it's really because, you know, I guess people's conviction about the likelihood of the deal completing. Um, is waning. So, you know, perhaps um, it's a takeover and the bidders lodging their acceptances and, and, you know, as time goes on and we know that they need to get to 90%, um, you know, uh, by the end of the offer period and they're just not making any headway. They're just gaining no traction and, you know, they haven't specifically said as much, but they've sort of indicated that, you know, they're very unlikely to increase their offer and people start to form a view about, you know, the, the deal not proceeding. So they're not going to get the minimum acceptance levels they require. Stock's going to go down as a result. Um, and, and, you know, you better to take the money and run now rather than, than wait for that to happen. So, um, you know, as you would know, and, and especially at the smaller end of the market, um, and especially, you know, given some of these stocks are relatively inefficient once they become subject to takeover, you can't always read too much into either one, right? So the, the stock going up prior to, you know, let's say the scheme meeting date or the offer close date, I'd say you know all else being equal is a positive, but there's no guarantee. And and likewise, I'd say a stock going down, um, you know, what something we observe a little bit is if there's um, you know, a non-binding deal that's subject to due diligence and and the, uh, you know, end date for when they announce due diligence would cease is approaching and a deal hasn't yet been announced. Often the stock will start to drift then because people think, oh, you know, we're getting really close to the end. Um, this might not be going to happen. Now, you know, the, the difficulty with that is that I would say just as often that period expires and a deal is announced immediately thereafter, um, versus, you know, the, the period expires and, and no deal is forthcoming. So that's actually quite difficult to price. But in both transactions that work and don't, work um you know you typically observe that drift towards the the kind of end of that you know exclusivity due diligence period um just because people you know I, I guess become more risk averse on the basis that they haven't you know yet had an update so you know like all these things i guess there are exceptions to that but but that's generally how i think about the drifting of, of price you know leading into the um you know the conclusion of the offer period. Um, just you know what you mentioned before uh, about time frame. Most transactions, if they're pretty simple, kind of three to four months is your standard time frame. Um, longer if you get more bidders involved, obviously because you know that that drags out the process. Sometimes longer if you need to get you know a triple C approval or third clearance, um, you know, or any other type of regulatory regulatory clearances if these uh, you know companies operate in other markets.
2: And just speaking about the the timeline here. What are some of the key, I don't know, maybe not key dates, but key um, events maybe that take place between that announcement and, you know, if the deal was to go through, um, you know, the change of control. So, you know, what are some of the, the like milestones uh, that you need to be aware of during the, the process of the takeover?
1: Yeah, sure. So, look, I I think if it's a non-binding transaction and they announce a due diligence period, then, you know, obviously understanding when that's going to start and when that's going to finish, you know, gives you some guide to when you might expect, um, you know, an an offer to be firmed up. If if it's the scheme of arrangement I described earlier – um, you know there are certain dates. You actually need to get court approval prior to sending out the scheme booklet. You also need um, court approval to convene the scheme meeting of shareholders. And then after the the meeting has concluded, um, if shareholders vote in favour, you need the court to ratify the scheme. So there are three you know key dates to be aware of. Obviously the day at which the scheme meeting is going to take place, when you know the vote outcome is very important. Um, the date. In that instance, by which you have to have lodged your votes, um, you know, is, is obviously very important. As a shareholder, you get to vote, you know, um, for or against the scheme. Um, if there's any kind of ex dividend date, um, so that you know, if the stock was going ex dividend, either just, you know, as as part of its sort of you know ordinary course of trading that just happens to overlap with the scheme, or alternatively, and you know, as as more is more often the case, if there's a special dividend or something associated with the scheme or takeover, obviously being aware of that date. Um, you know, it's very important. I think, um, if it's, if it's a takeover rather than a scheme, the offer close date is very important, obviously, um, uh, you know, in terms of knowing when that's coming up, um, you know, knowing the date by which, um, it's a bit beyond the, the, um, uh extent of this conversation but um there are you know certain dates by which if a bid is planning to extend their offer they need to to give you know advanced notice of that so being aware of when that day um you know is is coming is important because obviously if that day lapses or comes and goes with without an announcement you know that you know the bid is not going to be extending or, or increasing the offer so that's important you know our, our process really is once we're in a position um i mentioned before we think about downside and, and where our you know um, exit point would be, um, in the event that, uh, the deal would have fall over. So we, we have, um, you know, alerts set up at, uh, at that price. Um, we have alerts set up for news, um, you know, for, uh, for any of the positions that, that we're in. Sometimes we have alerts set up for news for any kind of other companies that might be in that sector, you know, to, to which the company that's the target of the bid is involved. Um, if there's any sort of C or FERB, um, uh you know consent required then you know we're typically setting up an alert for that um, from those respective websites and or through google so you know and then we just have a calendar of key dates for every position that that we enter into so that we're just aware of you know where we are in the cycle for each of the respective transactions i, I guess if you've got one or two you can monitor that fairly easily when you've got like 30 or 40 or 50 of them you um you just need a slightly uh well more systemized process i guess
2: how important is it to have uh, maybe not an extensive but just a, a basic understanding of corporate law? So, if you're trading takeovers in Australia, then corporate law in Australia, um, because I know there are certain uh, you know things which apply around takeovers, such as I'm pretty sure uh, the party who is um, you know launched the takeover bid uh, can only revise their bid. A certain number of times within a certain time frame, they can only buy so many shares on market. Like there's different things like that which probably play a factor in the possible outcomes of the this this transaction or this deal.
1: Look, I, I'd say it's important to an extent. I, I certainly don't think you need to be um you know a, a trained or experienced MA lawyer uh to to be able to do it. I think It's probably like playing a round of golf in some ways. I think, you know, golf gives you a little booklet of like, you know, 120 pages of rules. I would say if you kind of know 10 of them that, you know, you can play golf pretty effectively and we'll never need to worry about most of the rest of what happens. you know, I'd say it's, that this is sort of similar. I think that you know there are some very key rules that you need to be aware of, like you know um, the difference between a takeover and a scheme, which we discussed before. Um, you know is, is very important. Um, there's a threshold uh, beyond which you know a, a shareholder uh, subject to certain carve outs has to launch a takeover bid. So that's typically twenty percent. If you own twenty percent or more of a listed company, you're, you're forced to make a bid unless you get relief um you know from not doing so um i think you know understanding a little bit about you know how the mechanics of a a conditional versus unconditional bid uh work you know are important some of those key dates i mentioned before um knowing that you know the if it's a takeover bid that you have the takeovers panel at your disposal um you know to deal with disputes or you know kind of any alleged bad behavior on behalf of the bidder um, knowing that that's not available to you from a scheme perspective knowing for a scheme that you know just because shareholders have voted in favor it still needs court needs to be ratified by the court that usually happens anywhere from kind of 48 hours to a week later um, and, and you know the bidder still has an out um, during that period of time if, if one of the bid conditions um, you know are breached you know they're sort of the main ones right in in terms of if you know and understand how that works, you're probably 90 to 95% of the way there. And and then there are absolutely some other subtleties that, um, you know, you'll pick up on in time and, and that you probably need to be aware of. But I think, you know, if you sort of read enough scheme documents, you read enough takeover announcements, you consume enough media, you know, and there are absolutely, um, you know, I've, I've got a copy of like a, um, the corpse law um, at my disposal for, you know, I don't know it back to front. Absolutely not. But I know the key areas. I know where to look if I need something. Um, there's actually been a couple of good, it sounds boring, but academic textbooks that have, have been written, um, you know, that are, are takeover focused by M&A lawyers that look at different scenarios and, um, you know, precedent in, in, in certain situations. So, um, you know, I, I guess my view on on trading is no matter what you're doing, you know, it, it pays to be prepared and experienced and, um you know, I, I really feel like you sort of get out of it what you put in in terms of work. You know, this is no different. I, it's You're not buying an ETF, right? This is not a, you know, passive. I'll just buy it and kind of see what happens and, and not worry about it too much. It's absolutely not that. Um, but, you know, it's probably not as complex as it might sound to someone who's listening to this, who's never done it before and, you know, it just seems insurmountable. Um, it's not that at all.
2: Okay, Yeah. I mean, that ghost shop clause, I guess, is another thing which kind of falls under this category of knowing a little bit about the, the corporate law, which you explained earlier.
1: Yeah, well, I, I mean, the reason we would know that is, you know, I'd only seen one of those um, once previously that I could recall, and, and that was as recently as 2018. And, and the reason we notice that is because you most often notice the opposite. So, you know, once you sort of read these scheme documents when they're released and, and the agreements, there's typically, you know... Um, a, well, it specifically says that, you know, um, management can't sh- shop the company, right? So they, they've entered into exclusivity, um, and they're precluded from, you know, from talking to other parties, um, or at least soliciting other parties. So that stood out to us more so, not because, you know, we necessarily knew the law in that area or you know had had seen it before it was more the absence of seeing it before that made us kind of pay attention and go okay wow that's pretty different because as you'd imagine a lot of these documents are pretty cookie cutter right so um that you know 98 99 of them are all the same the value isn't in the sameness the value is in identifying um you know things that are different that you wouldn't normally see you know and that's work as well right because some of these documents are literally like a 100 20 or 30 pages and and you have to read through them all and and know sort of what you're looking for and what you're not looking for. But, um, you know, if I think about some of the best trades that we've ever done uh, and what the lead up to that has been, it's been discovering something in the way that deal has been structured. That's very different, um, you know, in a favorable way to to what we're accustomed to seeing. Mm.
2: Just one last question to wind this up. At what point do you actually book a profit or loss on the trade? And move on like are you hanging on there until the very end or are you taking some profit along the way if there's a revised higher bid etc um how do you exit these trades
1: yeah uh i would say that you know 80 90 percent of the time um we're seeing them through to completion so you know mainstream whatever buy it at a dollar 20 roughly and, and wait until you know um uh the process concludes and 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 take you two dollars 80 um you know that would differ which is is more of a kind of fund specific problem i guess that i mentioned before with with certain fund managers if you're getting to the point where the position has become so big that it's starting to breach you know or, or bump up against position limits then you know we kind of don't have a choice you have to sell some um you know in that scenario if we start to think that it's pretty clear that you know the the beating has stopped and that it's not going to be anything further. And, and, you know, probably in mainstream once it got to two eighty, you could be pretty sure of that. Um, you know, you could start to take some off the table just by virtue of the fact that there are so many other opportunities around at the moment that that you want to be able to fund them. You know, we would take some off if we thought the dynamics had changed a little bit. So I mentioned, you know, uh, much earlier in the conversation, you know, sometimes we'll look at something and go, you know, that just looks way too cheap relative to to how we've sort of, you know, scored the the risk through that, you know, uh, matrix scoring process I was talking about. So in that scenario, we might buy something because it looks too cheap, but then, you know, if it, it trades back to what we think is fair value at that time, you know, we typically, typically be taking exposure back off because we'd feel like we had too much of it. You know, they'd be the main reasons. I think the other reason we might do it is um sometimes when, you know, there's two or three active bidders who keep driving the price up um, you, know, you you can get a situation where stocks start to get ahead of themselves a little bit as bidders anticipate you know, more and more higher bids being forthcoming. So um, usually, if we saw a situation where the current share price is 10% above whatever the current best announced bid is in the market, usually we'd be taking some uh, off the table at that point. And, and that's really just because often, and not always, but if you get a new bid, They don't tend to be much more than 10% above, you know, whatever the last um, announced transaction was. And and in fact, sometimes, you know, kind of closer to five or 7%. So usually if you take some money off the table at a 10% premium to whatever's already been announced, um, obviously if there's no further improvement, then you're happy you sold. And if there is a further improvement, if you wanted to buy it back, You know you could probably do that at a price that's not particularly dissimilar you know to where you've sold it so you know they're all reasons for us to take money off the table or or when we'd sell early but um, you know surprisingly some of these things trade at far too big a discount even leading up to and including you know the last day or two before they're suspended from trading and the transaction completes so um, if you sort of you know we think about a lot of things in annualized terms you know what are we giving up here if we sell this rather than holding it on an annualized basis um, quite often you know at the end of the deal Um, these things are worth continuing to hold because, you know, the return is still sufficiently good that you don't want to have to sell it before, um, you know, you get paid your your scheme or takeover proceeds.
2: just one last thing. You mentioned in there, you know, sometimes you can have uh, the instance where you have another bidder come to the party and uh, they keep sort of driving the price higher and higher. How often does that happen? Like how often do you get – a, th- a, a second bidder joining the party, or maybe even a third—I'm not sure. You know—is that pretty rare, or does it happen maybe more often than most people would think?
1: Yeah, look, I, look—I think it's probably rare, but also happens more often than you might think. I, I think, on average, you know, over the last sort of let's call it 18, 19 years, you know, we'd have two that really kind of stick in your mind most years. That that tend to be really good, um, or two on average, I should say. So, you know, we might do, I mean, at the moment, you know, we might do 60 to 80 transactions this year. In any other year, we might do, you know, more like 40. So, let's say kind of 5% of the time through, you know, any kind of uh, economical or market cycle, we're we're getting two a year, um, you know, but as i said earlier this year um you know we we sort of had three of them happen in the space of a month um you know and, and our funds were up between like 7 and 15% for the month in you know strategies that would normally do you know 10 to 20% a year so obviously that's quite unusual um so look you know you, you actually don't need that many of them for this strategy you know to pay pretty handsomely like you said before you know you're obviously buying this stuff at 95 or 96 hoping that there's a counter bid at a dollar 10 or a dollar 20 or whatever the reality is yeah we're, we're absolutely always hoping for that but you know even if all you do is just keep buying stuff at 96 cents and getting a dollar that's not terrible. They, that sort of tends to annualize out at kind of eight to, you know, 12% per annum. Let's say maybe a bit lower at the moment because interest rates are so low. But, um, you know, you, you, only need the occasional kind of mainstream or think childcare or pure energy that I mentioned before to really make a difference, um, you know, on, on a yearly basis to returns because what we're really buying here are cheap call options, right? You know, all we're trying to do is, is take advantage of the optionality that exists in most of these transactions. And it's just optionality that isn't priced appropriately. So if you thought about buying a whole bunch of cheap call options, they don't pay off or they don't all pay off. But if you buy them cheaply enough, you don't need that many of them to pay off, you know, for it to be a successful strategy. And and that's really, you know, in a synthetic type way, that's really what we're doing. We're just underpaying for the optionality that exists in these transactions.
2: Yeah, 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 absolutely. All right, Luke, I'm going to let you go and uh, enjoy your evening. Um. I was just thinking, though, you've mentioned uh, mainstream and uh, think childcare, I think it is, a few times. I know you sometimes write about uh, these takeovers on your website, like in a newsletter for your fund. Um, Is there any way we could is have you written about these and is there any way we could include links to those in the show notes um if you have done yeah so?
1: absolutely i'll um we, we've got a white paper that you know just kind of covers the basics of, of the strategy as we trade it um we we publish all of our um you know fun newsletters uh, on our website it's actually a couple of other books i mentioned earlier that um you know i think are really good resources in this area if it's something that you know you're you're interested in Um, a couple of really boring legal type ones but a couple of kind of you know lighter more entertaining versions uh if you can believe that's possible so um maybe i'll send you a a bunch of different things um you know following the call and you can upload whatever you think is going to be of value definitely
2: yeah let's uh let's do that i'll include links to all of that in the show notes so uh folks listening Uh, you can find the show notes for this episode by going to chatwithtraders.com slash the episode number i'm not sure what episode number this will be right now but uh, that's where it'll be if you want to find it okay luke uh, again it's been nice to chat with you i can't believe it's been what five or six years since we first did this but um, i greatly appreciate your time this has been hugely insightful yeah it's been really really good so thanks a lot man
1: Aaron. Great to chat as always. Uh, Good good to talk to you. Hopefully not another five or six years till we do another one.
2: All right. Talk soon, mate. Bye.
1: All the best. Bye.
2: You've reached the end of
0: this episode of Chat with Traders, but rest assured, there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon.